Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. Uh, there's a, a certain feeling today, this is, we are recording this on Thursday, August 27th, uh, about midday, and um, we have not yet heard the president's acceptance speech at tonight's uh, version of the virtual convention, but uh, there has been, uh, there have been a number of events in the last few days that have given things a very worrying edge, and uh, one of those was the shooting of Jacob Blake in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, so I'd like to begin with Bill uh, to, uh, to analyze uh, what you, first of all, the, the facts of this situation are not yet fully known. And one of the things that I'm critical of, there's a lot to be critical of, of course, you know, the, 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 the speed with which misinformation flies around the web is, is really frightening. And we'll get to another example of that in a second. But what is very frustrating is that there have been all these stories about what happened to Blake, um, and yet the police have not really provided much information at all. Well, that's correct. Uh, and so people are reacting on the basis of the fragments of what has appeared in the public record, plus, of course, their priors. Mm -hmm. uh, but the events are not waiting for a fuller disclosure of the factual narrative of what occurred. That's extremely unfortunate. First of all, I mean, we know that Mr. Blake himself was shot seven times and probably left paralyzed. And we also know that a, a young man took it on himself to carry. Well, let's wait on, yeah, we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, but Fair enough. Yeah, Fair sticking enough. now so, with just with the Blake so story. Look, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what to say at this point with limited availability of facts, except that there is a pre-existing template into which the different uh, different people from different points of view will slot their opinions and reactions. And we're seeing that in full force. I'm extremely reluctant at this point to come out strongly in one direction or another uh, because I, I don't think that I'm in possession of the relevant facts. I will say this. I find it difficult to avoid the overall impression that police are more likely to resort to deadly force than they should be, uh, and that they have not been trained in any way to back off uh, or to slow down or to try to cool things down uh, or to react with restraint 
when they're confronted with what the sociologists call oppositional behavior. We know that relations between the police and African-American communities across the country are tense and fraught. Police know or ought to know uh, that that these confrontations are not likely to go smoothly. Uh, that the person that they're trying to uh, apprehend may very well not respond to an initial set of commands. And, uh, uh, And they ought to be trained to respond with a series of steps leading up to the use of force as a last resort. And I'm saying this as someone who believes in the necessity of policing. Uh, I do not believe that any society can do without it. Uh, I'm an agnostic on whether communities around the country are over-policed or not. I'm afraid that some of them are badly and unfairly policed, but that's a different matter. And some are under-policed. And some are under-policed, but uh, in case after case, My impression is that there were alternatives to the resort of deadly force that were either not seriously employed or not employed at all. And I think this goes back to the way policemen are trained. And if we want better policing, then we're going to have to go back to the fundamental assumptions with which police are sent from their training out into the streets. Linda, I'm sympathetic to Bill's point of view, but you know, you do hear um, critiques where people say, look, the it's so hard to draw conclusions based on a few seconds of video that gets circulated on social media. You don't know what led up to it and so on and so forth. And um, some people are saying uh, that if this had been a white man, there wouldn't have been an outcry about it. Um, and that police, of course, shoot more white people than Black people in general, although you know that's a, a very very fraught subject. Um, but um, but to 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 bolster Bill's point, um, when you look at the number of police killings in the United States and c- compare it to other countries, I mean we are just off the charts. Um, in uh, in in 2019, for example, um, there were something like uh, 1,099 uh, civilians who were killed by the police in the United States. Um, in Canada, which of course does have a much smaller population, but in any case, the number was 36. In Japan, which has about half our population, it was two. Now, right, you know, right, right. So um, that does kind of bolster um, Bill's point. And is it is it partly that we are just we are a nation of gun fetishists, and we and we just have so many guns in circulation that the police are in a state of constant terror for their own lives? What What do you think? Well, I wrote a piece about uh, this back when the George uh, Floyd uh, killing took place, and it obviously wasn't uh, death by gun. But uh, I wrote about the uh, out-of-control police. And I think, you know, those of us who do support the police, who do believe that police have an important function, that they have a difficult job, I don't think it is made better by uh, the kind of policing tactics we've seen, especially since 
2001. And I think there's been a, um, a move towards uh, heavier weapons, towards tanks, towards police acting more like an occupying army sometimes than like uh, community policemen uh, and women. And I think that is a problem. I also think that the most important thing that Bill said, and I'd like to echo it here, is that we do not know yet all that took place in that confrontation. We do know, uh, indisputably, uh, that a man was shot multiple times in the back. And I do not believe that there is any excuse for the police doing that. Um, there, you know, obviously if your back is turned, even if, you know, it's later shown that he was reaching for a weapon. I mean, there's been some talk about whether or not there was a knife, uh, in his car. You don't shoot somebody seven times in the back. And, um, and so they aren't well-trained, but what has happened is we have become so tribal in our, uh, ways of interpreting information that, Half of the country sees an incident like this one way, and the other half sees an entirely different and opposite way. And this is unhealthy. And the worst part is that your uh, bill is right. We haven't heard anything from the authorities. We have no one who's coming out even and suggesting that there's more information to be had. And so we're all left, you know, to take a look at Twitter and to react because of, you know, a few seconds of video uh, and to react, uh, you know, based on what are, what preconceptions we bring to what it is we're viewing. And that is very, very bad, particularly in this highly charged political atmosphere. Um, Damon, I like Linda, I, I, and Bill, I, I sort of, you know, you see somebody shot seven times in the back and you think, for heaven's sake, first of all, it didn't seem necessary to shoot him at all, but okay, I am second guessing the police officers here. I, I confess to that. And I'm not an expert in firearms, but I have heard people say that it's ridiculous to count the number of shots because once you start shooting, you know, the adrenaline is pumping and you can't really control yourself. Um, do you have any insight into this? <laughs> Well, not really. Uh, I'm not at all an expert in, in uh, kind of criminal justice issues or policing. I mean, I will say as a human being and a male and someone who can imagine being in the place of a, of a police officer uh, in current circumstances, I can imagine it, the, the pressures in the moment are enormous. I mean, I, I'm not excusing anything because like all the rest of you, I don't know what happened. And unlike with the Floyd video where we at least had the context of the several minutes on the video, seeing this poor man's life snuffed out, uh, in this case, we have no idea what preceded it. And well, so we, we do were, have a few other facts. Um, he was, there were outstanding warrants for his arrest for, uh, third degree sexual assault and for um, uh, trespass. And 
The reason the police were there is because his, I guess, ex-girlfriend had called saying that he was there, wouldn't leave, and had taken her keys and wouldn't give them back. Sure, but, you know, those don't sound like the kinds of things that one would expect would lead to, to be a death shot sentence. in the back. No, exactly, exactly. I mean, the escalation from one to the other is enormous. And right. but, but I do, at the same time, I do think that my mind does go to... Are, you're a police officer. You you uh, are you've been living through now of several months of of protests, denunciations, uh, all the way from major politicians to local officials around the country. Uh, chants uh, against the police, calls to defund the police. And there, there is a kind of looming sense of, of kind of danger on the streets with crime, uh, violent crime acts going up in a lot of places. And then you're in this situation where you, if something goes slightly wrong, the temptation to kind of leap to an almost paranoid response and overreact is probably pretty great. But this all speaks to the bigger problems that Bill first put on the table, and all of us have been elaborating that there seems to be a problem in police training. The fact that that the the, the things that would keep a, a human interaction like this from escalating so badly is is not functioning correctly. Both as a function, probably, of training and kind of psychological acuity on the part of the police officer to judge how to react and de-escalate, but also the, the, the incredible number of weapons, guns that are out there on the street. I mean, one reason why cops in this country shoot so many more people is that the people they're confronting, the criminals, are themselves very heavily armed, or, right. or they have every reason to presume they might be because there's like one gun for every American out there in circulation. Uh, and so um, it's, it's, a, it's a bad combination of, of, uh, of causes coming from every direction. So into this very, very sensitive and fraught environment of, you know, heightened tensions over the Floyd and other deaths, Breonna Taylor and so forth, plus the pandemic, plus a presidential race that many people regard as uh, existentially important. Um, We also had uh, a a shout out on social media for armed vigilantes, basically, to come to Kenosha and, uh, and defend life and property as they claimed they were doing. Well, one young man this is uh, Bill was about to talk about this. Kyle Rittenhouse, seventeen years old, arrives with a big gun, and um, there's video of him chatting with. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I've heard there's video of him chatting with police officers and the police thanking him and others like him for coming out. Um, and uh, later on that evening, he shot and killed two people, and uh, and and wounded wounded a third. Um, so since Bill, I cut you off when you first mentioned this. Um, if you, if you want to return to that, that topic, uh, please do. Well, uh, just very briefly, uh, it is clear to me from the accounts that I've read, uh, that Kenosha, the Kenosha police force was overwhelmed very quickly. 
they had never anticipated events of this sort. And they found themselves outmanned in a matter of hours. Uh, my understanding is that uh, the mayor of Kenosha then requested uh, the deployment of substantial number of National Guard troops. The, the request went to the governor. The governor responded initially with a deployment of 250. I think the request was something like 1,500. Uh, and that was manifestly inadequate. Uh, if the National Guard had been deployed in force earlier, it is possible that the space the vigilantes filled would not have been opened. Uh, so that's that's one of the variables here, that when things are spinning out of control, uh, it's sort of uh, law and order 101 that you respond with enough force to be seen as a credible deterrent. Uh, and that if you try to apply the force incrementally, you're going to come up with bad results. So that's part of what happened in this case. But obviously, the ability of social media uh, to round up not just the good guys <laughs> for worthy purposes, but the bad guys for the reverse uh, is in full evidence. And and here we are. Yeah. Um... Linda, this young man, Kyle Rittenhouse, who's been arrested, um, apparently uh, is very fond of guns, uh, very uh, pro-police, according to his Facebook posts, uh, and uh, was at, in the front row at a Trump rally in January. Yes, but, you know, um, I think we have to be very careful here. The New York Times has a very interesting pay, uh, piece uh, on the front page of their online edition today, which is called Tracking the Sus Suspect Accused of Killings at Protests. And they went through video uh, and film footage. And what they discovered was that, yes, this uh, young man should not have been there. He absolutely should not have been there. He absolutely should not have had an AR-15 type rifle at his disposal. And the Is he old enough to be carried? No, 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 I didn't think so. Uh, but but uh, the first person that he shot, um, he shot after another firearm, not next to him, but fairly close by, went off. You can see the flare. Uh, in the camera footage, and as someone was coming towards him. So uh, then he fled, and he fell down after he fled, and they he was being chased by people who were screaming, you know, there, there's the shooter, there's the shooter, and he had already killed one person. Um, and they began to descend on him while he was on the ground, and he then shot two more people, killing one and uh, injuring another in his arm. The person he injured, apparently the footage shows, was carrying a handgun. Uh, at the time. And now it wasn't pointed at him, it doesn't look like. But all of that is to say, again, this is a very confusing situation. And Bill is absolutely right. What we do not need on our street are vigilantes. And unfortunately, this administration and many on the right are encouraging people 
to, you know, bear arms. I mean, having, we'll talk about it later, I'm sure, but having the McCloskeys on this yes. week during the, during yeah. the uh, convention, you know, mm-hmm. people with their AR-15s and their 357 Magnums. Um, you know, I, I, and I say this, by the way, as a gun owner. I mm-hmm. own guns. I've shot guns. And I will tell you that, you know, this idea that you are going to keep pulling the trigger. I mean, if anybody who's ever shot a gun knows, unless you're talking about an automatic and the police don't have those and most people don't have access to them, you have to pull that trigger. And it is not something that's done easily, at least not uh, in this woman's hand. So, so it, it's just terrible that we have heavily armed people taking to the streets and that there are protesters who are not, you know, just protesting. They are there to do violence and mayhem. And the and the country is descending into chaos, and we are seeing it before our very eyes. Yeah, uh, that is what is very, very scary. Uh, let me just add one other thing that we didn't mention, but this is a piece of just this, this terrible welter of confusion and uh, misinformation that is out there and leads to terrible things. So in Minneapolis, which had quieted down, um, there was a, 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 a black man committed suicide uh, in public on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, but there was quickly, the rumor spread on social media that the police had shot him. And, um, and so there were riots and terrible destruction. And even though the police quickly issued a, uh, a, a surveillance video of the man actually shooting himself, it was, it was not effective. Uh, the, the riots, the riots went on and, uh, Damon, of course, there are political implications of this. Um, I um, I thought that Joe Biden put out a, a very good statement on Twitter um, that 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 hit all the right notes. But um, but the, this is uh, most people perceive. Many observers think this is quite a vulnerability for the Democratic Party in general. Yeah, well, I I certainly agree it is. And one reason why is because the right has decided that they are going to benefit the worst things get. And when you get into a dynamic like that in politics, things get very dangerous very quickly. Uh, As a kind of side note to this, I wanted to add on on the broader discussion of of the kind of the problem that happened in Kenosha with Rittenhouse coming in with his own gun. Back in late May, when uh, right after the Floyd killing, when we had this large, uh, you know, protests around the country, some of which were more like riots um, in Philadelphia, where I live, uh, in an area of the city called Fishtown, uh, which is kind of a, a gentrifying area that used to be more kind of white working class. Um, after the first night or two of riots, uh, you started to see vigilante, very kind of jacked up, muscular guys walking around with guns and baseball bats. And they were the police in Philadelphia were caught like slapping them on the back, shaking their hands, giving them like bear hugs. It was like they had called in for backup from, from freelance vigilantes. And one NPR reporter had his cell phone and was out filming some of this. And one of these baseball wielding guys came over and beat the crap out of them 
with a baseball bat. And then he took like a selfie of his, his bloody face after this happened. And that was, you know, a few months ago. And it sounds like the Rittenhouse situation is a similar thing. And what you also had last night is then, which I think is far worse than anything we've talked about so far, is Tucker Carlson with his 4 million nightly viewers on his Fox News show cheering on the vigilante, saying, of course he came to help when the government won't put down the thugs and the anarchists. Ordinary citizens are going to go in there. What else did you expect? Treating him like a hero. Now, that will boost his ratings, keep up his his fat salary at Fox News, and also maybe tip the country into greater chaos, which could only help his preferred candidate in the race for president. So it's a it's a bad situation, and the right is certainly not contributing in in a healthy way. Uh, you do not want a civil society where. The cops are kind of teaming up with freelance vigilantes wielding guns and baseball bats. That's that's not going to end well. May I drop an historical footnote to this, Mona? Yeah, absolutely. A few weeks ago, a very interesting book came out called Hard Hat Riot mm-hmm. by David Paul Kuhn. And it it talked about a confrontation between anti-war protesters uh, and white working class, uh, mostly construction construction workers, workers yeah, union guys, uh, who in effect formed vigilante groups to go after the anti-war protesters, frequently with baseball bats, and you saw exactly the same pattern of police standing by and then congratulating uh, the the hard hats after they'd beaten students within inches of their lives. So this, you know, this idea uh, is nothing new, unfortunately. Uh, and, and the police, I would have thought, are prepared to be neutral enforcers of the law. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, And it gets to be very dangerous uh, when the police take one side of an argument in politics or civil society. It's it's exactly what they should not be doing. Right. Well, this um, this brings us very uh, smoothly into a discussion of the Republican National Convention because, arguably, Linda, uh, (laughs) the theme is that in Joe Biden's America, you are not safe. Uh, Those are the words of the sitting vice president. Uh, Oh, oh my goodness. You know, um, I've never had a root canal, thankfully, (laughs) uh, but I have... uh, now experience what it's like to have a root canal because I have been glued to my television set. I agreed to do some commentary responses for the New York Times. I have had to watch every single minute of the you Republican convention. And it's been torture. <laughs> yeah, it's torture. I, I your pain. I'm right there with you, believe me. Uh, uh, so, uh, but yes, you know, what is so amazing to me is that they're out there telling you that this is what's going to happen if Joe Biden is elected in January. Excuse me. Who's the president right now? This is happening right. now. We don't I know, have- but Linda, wait. Let me let me just interrupt right right there because look, you know, there's that 
look, it, it's it's completely ridiculous to accuse him of of uh, of making people unsafe. On the other hand, the argument that they're making, which isn't completely crazy and may have some traction, frankly, um, is that Democrats are too um, wary of alienating their left wing, and they don't ever want to call a riot a riot. And they have, like, certainly the governor of Wisconsin, who's a Democrat, was uh, was much too um, uh, tentative about calling in the National Guard and and restoring order. Absolutely, and and you know, uh, I've said this privately on some group exchanges I'm on. Would that, you know, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, were out there speaking for the Democrats right now. She was great when there were riots in Atlanta. And we do need to hear more from the African-American community, from Democrats, from civil uh, leaders around uh, the country and in our cities, calling what's going on. Uh, what it is, I mean, when buildings are being destroyed, when there's arson, uh, when uh, when people are basically under uh, out of control and they're looting and they're destroying things, that's a riot. That's not a mm-hmm. protest. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we should not, you know, veer away from that. And frankly, the people who are leading the protests, I think, I mean, I don't want them to become vigilantes like on the right, but I do want them to do some self policing and to be out there speaking very clearly to the people they've gathered together in the streets to say, we're not going to tolerate this. We will not have people doing things that are criminal uh, in our name and supporting our position. So I am like you, I'm very worried that as ridiculous as it is, that it could in fact certainly will drive more people to vote for Trump. And I'm worried that it might actually tip the election if things keep getting worse. So, uh, Bill, Sarah Longwell did some more of her um, focus groups, and uh, and and along with her focus groups, she was also citing data from uh, Pew, showing that while there was a tremendous spike in sympathy for the Black Lives Matter movement right after George Floyd's killing, uh, it has zipped back down to where it was before his killing um, in the months. Uh, that have intervened because people are really worried about the violence and they perceive and not incorrectly, in my opinion, that when people are burning and looting, uh, looting, that is not an expression of righteous anger. That is opportunistic criminality. Um, And, uh, and people draw a very clear distinction between protest and criminality. Uh, Are Democrats aware of the danger that this poses to them? Joe Biden clearly is. Yeah. You referred to a statement that he issued that I was going to cite. Uh, I read it very carefully a number of times, and I'm not sure I could have improved it. Yeah, I thought it was pitch perfect. Agreed. The question is, is, will that be seen as an authentic response by him uh, on behalf of the entire Democratic Party, or will it be will it be seen as just a verbal gesture and a mm-hmm. meaningless one, given the broader tide of events? Uh, if I were advising the Biden campaign, which I am not, uh, I would uh, I, I would tell them what I hope they already know, namely that in mass politics, repetition is the mother of persuasion, uh, and doing yeah. it once is not doing it. 
Yeah. Uh, so we sh- we shall see how seriously they take this. Uh, but uh, if it is if it is a potentially momentum shifting issue, uh, which it could be, uh, and I think I may have underestimated its force because uh, I. I am old enough to remember when terrible destructive riots were truly nationwide and not just in a handful of cities. Uh, But uh, it is very easy if you have one example to try to persuade people uh, that that example is somehow symbolic of a larger reality, even when it isn't. well, so, I have yeah. to say there are quite a few cities that are uh, that have experienced, you know, significant violence and rioting in the last several months. I mean, you you have by, um, by uh, the standards of 1968. No, no, it's not mid nineteen mid nineteen sixties. That's that's my baseline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When every city had something real to worry about based on ex- its experience or the experience of a neighboring city. That just isn't the situation now, uh, but it is very easy in this age of instant instant news, instant video, instant everything to blow up a handful of examples, and I think that's a fair characterization, into a representation of the totality. And... Damon, on Facebook and uh, other social media, you know, people who um, uh, people are getting a, a, a loop of these violent images, you know, day after day after day. So that can um, exaggerate people's sense of how widespread it really is. But uh, but but I want I wanted to just get your comments um, about the very nature of this Republican convention, because you know, on the one hand, um, uh, it is attempting to portray, as we said, the Democrats as the party of what did they hear? This was Donald Trump Jr. He said, "This election is shaping up to be church, work, and school versus rioting, looting, and vandalism." <laughs> Typically subtle um, for the Trump family, but um, but but really, there's something else that happened before the convention got rolling that is just flabbergasting, and that is that the Republican National Committee put out a statement saying that they were not going to have a party platform, uh, that uh, they were simply going to re up the 2016 party platform and. In this statement, which really is a summation in my judgment about where the Republican Party, what ha- what it has become, um, they do two things. They go after the media um, and they say, resolved that the Republican Party has and will continue to enthusiastically support the president's America first agenda. Um, it, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, the, it, it was also the case that the DNC did not talk very much about policy. Uh, and I think what you're seeing in this election more than I've ever noticed it, uh, before is that what you get instead are just dueling hermetically sealed worldviews. and. Yeah. And there are differences between the worldviews that I think explain a lot of the, about the potency of the Republicans and the challenges faced by the Democrats. The, the Democrats are telling a complicated 
both and story, if you if you know that that phrase, both and. So, and you even heard it in Biden's, I thought, also very good statement yesterday about uh, the rioting in response to the Kenosha shooting, where the Democrat repeatedly has to say, Yes, there is injustice. Yes, America has failed, but also, and there's a better future ahead. So mm-hmm. it was bad. We fail even in the present, but in the future, it will get better because we have these good principles and we're always in this progressive movement in history toward getting ever better. And for a lot of people on the center left and left, that is kind of in their veins that like, yeah, that's the story of America. You look in the back in the past and it's somehow shameful because of slavery and, and, and what happened to the native Americans. And then all of the other groups who've been included in the, in American democracy that were once excluded. And so the future will be better than the present and the present is better than the past. The Republicans have, by this point, developed, I do think the Republicans used to tell a story somewhat like that in their own way, but it has become something very different, and you've heard it at this convention over and over, and I think we'll maybe get to more detail about uh, Vice President Pence's speech, which I thought was sinisterly very powerful yesterday. Um, You hear a story that's either or, not both and. It's the country was born great. It has always been great unless it is under assault by enemies, foreign and domestic, or foreign or domestic. So that can either be communists or it can be like the Chinese Communist Party or Iran abroad or at home. It can be these diabolical socialist Marxist uh, woke crusaders who were going to destroy the country. And so you have this story that Pence told last night where, again, born great, always great until it was torn down by these other forces. And then Trump came in and he made us great again. And then the Chinese virus came in and we've had this dip, but we need to vote for him again. And once again, we will make America great again, again, he said at the end. So it's either or black or white uh, or light or dark. Uh, and, and it's very Manichaean. And those are the two stories. And the policies, you know, whatever, you know, some Republicans want to have big government, some want small government, some want America to be tough around the world, others want us to withdraw. Yeah, the, the great leader will figure that out. What matters is that we affirm the right story. And that, at least, is what I'm hearing between last week and this week between the two parties. Linda, um, forgive me for being um, a little bit cynical about these these uh, fear mongering speeches about socialism, but um, this administration presided over the largest deficits in history during. An economic expansion, um, and uh, I, I used to think that one of the differences between Democrats and Republicans was that Democrats um, that it was that Republicans at least play, paid lip service to the idea of of uh, fiscal responsibility. Um, that's gone. <laughs> 
uh, so so is the you know devotion to liberty, including free markets. That's gone as well. That's gone. You know, we've got to have uh, trade policies that uh, try to punish certain people, and not just our enemies, by the way, also our friends. Yeah. Look, th- there is no principle uh, there, and uh, and that is one of the the tragedies of. Trump's takeover of the Republican Party. And what is going to be very interesting to see is if he is not, in fact, elected, whether or not out of uh, the embers, there can be a coalescence around uh, some of the principles that once defined conservatism. And I'm not sure that there will be. I mean, this has all become, I think, as Damon uh, didn't use the phrase, but I think it's all become a culture war. And this is all about uh, culture. And uh, if you look through, you know, the themes of the convention, I mean, it's us against them. It's, you know, my country, right or wrong. Uh, It's love it or leave it. Uh, And uh, there is no room for civil debate, for differences in trying to approach how it is, you know, that we share common goals. Um, We may differ about how it is we achieve those goals. And that's been, you know, what I've always believed is that I don't think that people who are progressives and disagree with me on a whole variety of issues are bad people, uh, that they don't want some of the same things I want. Or that they hate America. Or that they hate America, right. I think that we have different ways of approaching how to achieve what we want to achieve, but that basically people who get involved in politics uh, in a democracy are people who love freedom, who love uh, our country. And, um, you know, I just want to believe that there is goodwill on both sides, but that is not the view of Trump's Republican Party. And it was on full display this week. Um, and and I, I guess one of the things that was so cynical to me, and I don't know if you were going to bring this up or not, but the, you know, the appeals to women in blacks that took place. <laughs> I was this, just going to turn to you about that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> The, the number of black and, and, and female speakers was, was overwhelming. Yeah. And they tried to convince us, despite our lying eyes and ears, that Donald Trump was no racist, that in fact he was you know, the ultimate uber feminist, uh, that he <laughs> empowered women, and that he loves black people. And, uh, even, and that you know, he's sensitive and compassionate. And he's sensitive and compassionate, yeah. And then, you know, I looked at that naturalization ceremony that took place, and I thought to myself, aren't those people from those S-hole countries yeah. that he referred to? I didn't see any... Uh, what was it? Nor- Norwegians, Norwegians, yeah. Norwegians there being yeah. sworn in. So, you know, it's so cynical. It's so hateful. It's also and, so transparent, you would think. Well, I would hope so. But, you know, look, he's not a, he's not going to get, you know, a huge portion of the black vote. He's going to lose the female vote. He just wants to eke out enough suburban female voters to be able to assure that he wins in those battleground states. And he thinks if he parades a lot of women and a lot of blacks in front of them, they're going to think he's an okay guy. And when people talk about him being, you know, uh, a loud mouth and, and, you know, not being able to control his Twitter feed, but really in private, he's a really nice guy. And he gives you a call after you've had a double mastectomy in the hospital. And, you know, he does all these nice, kind things to people that, that we're going to buy it. (sighs) Um, Damon, I, I, I want to hear more from you about this Pence uh, address because I I found it 
beyond disgusting. Um, there were so many lies and misrepresentations of various kinds in it. But you, what did you say? You said it was diabolically something. Yeah, it was. It was diabolically powerful and effective. I mean, oh. I, it was. It was. Um, I agree with you that it was, I mean, some passages of it were like almost like bullet pointed lies. Like the whole bit about Trump's response to the coronavirus was just an alternative reality take on what really happened. And, and it's the things that he said about Biden's record. uh, it, It was, there were long passages in it that were just simply made up nonsense. Uh, and, and so if you're grading it uh, kind of from outside the Republican bubble, uh, it was appalling. And I agree that it was appalling. But by the same token, kind of as someone who comes out of a bit of a speech writing background and I study presidential rhetoric, it was, I think, incredibly effective at doing what I was talking about a moment ago at painting a closed worldview that is utterly different than the, the the narrative that you hear and that is sort of presumed in the mainstream media among liberals, progressives, Democrats, however you want to put it, people who are not diehard Republicans. And so, and, and I was kind of slack jawed listening to it. First of all, Pence is an extremely gifted uh, speaker. He used to, he came out of a radio background and he say he speaks extremely well. He's very good with the dramatic pause. I think only Obama is as good as he is at delivering a speech. I think Obama's speech last week was brilliant. Um, and Pence's was kind of like the kind of the kind of, uh, the dark evil version of, of Obama's speech because it too presented this like monumental choice, uh, this monumental decision facing the American people. But can I, can I interrupt for one? Yeah, yeah, sure. Here's here's a quote, uh, quote the vice president. The choice in this election is whether America remains America. Exactly. Well, Ron Bronstein has a good piece in the Atlantic today where he, he, you know, frames the whole analysis of the convention using the, the Michael Anton flight 93 essay mm-hmm. to say that the rhetoric of that essay where everything is at stake, everything is on the line. We have to charge the cockpit and risk crashing the plane because if we don't, we know we're doomed has now totally shaped the way that Republicans think about every election. And and Pence's evocation of that was the most kind of fully developed and fleshed out I've heard in a real political speech. So that's what I'm commenting on, that I was sort of amazed to think, like, my goodness, if the Republican Party really, like, if this is how they and kind of Republican-leading independents really start looking at the world as a whole, this is this is not going to be good. I will add as a quick addendum that it is also true that Obama's speech was also was kind of like the flight 39 election. Now, I tend to lean in the direction of Obama's interpretation of this. In fact, I, I, I made my my wife and daughter watch the speech with me on the weekend because I thought it was such a great speech. And we all sort of agree with the, the gravity facing us. But note how both both parties are going into this as if I have to win or America is doomed. Yep. And it's it, Armageddon. It, it's, it's a little troubling when rhetoric ratchets up to quite that level. 
And especially when you have people shooting one another in the streets as the background noise of this, um, it's, uh, it's, it's very worrying. I, I just, I just have to just throw in a couple of fact checks. I mean, one of the things that Pence said was that Biden is for open borders. Not true. He also said, in fact, he fought with the other Democrats, uh, during the primary about that very matter. Um, he also said that he favors defunding the police again, false, um, well, uh, and, and he, he said one more thing, which was um, highly, um, highly misleading. It wasn't an outright lie, but it, was, it might as well be. He said that um, the security guard, Dave Patrick Underwood, the black security guard, who he said was killed, quote, during riots in Oakland, unquote. Well, he was, but he the, the chief suspect is a member of the Boogaloo Boys or whatever they call themselves, which is a right-wing uh, extremist uh, group. So that's a little bit of uh, sleight of hand there. Um, so, so um, Bill, uh, one of the things that I thought I was going to – when I heard that the McCloskeys, the gun-toting Italianate mansion dwellers from St. Louis um, – who became internet uh, sensations a couple weeks ago, that they were going to be speaking. I thought, oh my goodness, that's going to be a complete catastrophe. And I, you know, I, I happen to think that they are dangerous fools um, for the way they wave their guns at people um, and uh, with their fingers on the triggers. Um, but at the same time, I have to say, sort of like Damon uh, evaluating the Mike Pence speech, um, this this little appeal that they did about you know we were just minding our own business and a, and an angry mob descended on our home and we're just protecting our our home that's going to resonate with a lot of people. This this may be wishful thinking, uh, but I note with interest that the audience for the Republican convention is or has been, on, at least on the first night, it was smaller than for the first night of the Democratic Convention. I think it, it's probably evened up a little. Who is watching? Uh, my, my sense is that viewership on both sides has imploded towards the people who are already committed to their respective parties. Uh, how much persuasion is actually going on? How many minds are being changed? How many votes are being shifted? Uh, I'm not sure that the answer to that is a lot. Uh, it's very early in the game, and no doubt both sides will be slicing and dicing their convention and using it to best advantage wherever they think it will be effective. Uh, but uh, the the reaction from the Democratic convention uh, indicates that it essentially left the race unchanged. It's possible that the reaction from the Republican convention will show a shift of some sort, in which direction I won't venture to predict. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I have no idea whether whether the suburbs will say, oh, my goodness, the barbarians are coming, we'd better vote for Trump, or whether there will be a backlash against the over-the-top rhetoric that many speakers employed. 
I just don't know. And I don't think anybody knows at this point. You, and you, I, you have ar- I have argued repeatedly. I've made myself completely clear on this point so that if I'm wrong, I will be completely wrong. <laughs> um, that is an unmistakably and undeniably wrong. And that is, it is not 1968 anymore. Mm-hmm. And that white America is not where white America was in 1968. We have changed. We haven't changed as much as we thought we had or hoped we had, but we have changed. Uh, white America is much more educated than it was back then. Trump's base is a lot smaller. It's only half the size as a share of the electorate that it was back then. Uh, and uh, I am not sure how much of a difference this is going to make with the five to seven percent of the electorate that is persuadable. Damon, did you want to add something? Yeah, just a little bit, a little tiny bit of data on some of this. Um, our friend Sarah Longwell, whom you brought up earlier, uh, was tweeting also about some focus groups that she's held in the last couple of weeks. And she said that in two cities where she's met with, uh, I, I think she usually meets with like Republican women who voted for Trump but aren't happy with him and might be persuaded to vote for Biden. Of all the people at two focus groups she's done in the last couple, of weeks, only one person has been watching the convention. Yeah. And then uh, also this morning or right, uh, I guess, around noon, right before we started taping, overnight ratings were released for night three of the convention. Republican had viewership of 10.5 million people. The third, it is the third night of the Democrats was 16.2 million. Uh, Pence's speech was watched. uh, by 54% fewer people than Harris's. So that sounds atrocious. Like we're all watching this uh, for our sins, but <laughs> you wonder how many other people actually are. However, let me throw it in another curveball for you. You may have seen another little note from the week is that um, there have been these roving bands of Black Lives Matter protesters, usually entirely white, uh, walking through cities and kind of barging into restaurants and kind of coming around people and demanding that they hold up their fist in solidarity with the movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, there was this viral video of a bunch of people doing that at a, at a Washington, D.C. restaurant. And that video has been viewed as of this morning by 12.5, well, it's had 12.5 million views which means that 2 million more people in the last 48 hours have viewed that video than watched the the convention last night. So that just shows like it's hard to anticipate exactly how all of this is going to play out because the the actual convention, which you would think would be the main driver of public opinion, maybe that's dying and is going to have very little impact. But a single viral video that makes a lot of suburban people go, oh, crap, I I sure hope the next time I'm out to dinner, these thugs don't come in and intimidate me and threaten to beat me up for not raising my fist. Um, It's hard to know. Yeah, I I have to tell you, when I saw that video, (laughs) the first thing I thought of was, Hmm. 
This couldn't have been scripted better if it was done by the Trump for President Committee, right? A bunch of Black Lives Matter thugs threatening a poor lady who actually was had marched with Black Lives Matter and was just sitting there trying to enjoy her meal and was being harassed by this huge gang. And, um, and I thought, in fact... I'm wondering if Roger Stone isn't behind this somewhere. Yeah, well, if Roger Stone had done it, they would have been the protesters would have been from uh, Black Voices for Trump because that yeah, that, right, that right, 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 okay. even more incendiary. Yeah, so here's here's my question: What were the diners doing inside at a restaurant? No, they were outside. outside, outside. They were outside. They were outside. Okay, fair enough. Um, uh, but Linda, did you have one well, other thing? On the- well, a couple of things. I mean, one is I, I think what we're hearing from Damon is um, is scary because I think that social media and you know YouTube and all of the hits that you're going to see on Twitter and other places are driving the discussion more than people sitting down and doing what we've done, even at you know even though we've been hostage uh, to do it, which is actually <laughs> listening uh, to the whole thing. And, and that's, you know, that is unfortunate. The other thing though, I was going to say was about Bill Galston saying, this is not 1968 in terms of, um, you know, the election, the electorate, you're darn right. It's not uh, in part because the white population that Richard Nixon was able to appeal to was an overwhelming white majority. And we are no longer uh, an overwhelming white majority, uh, particularly if you uh, count non-Hispanic whites, because uh, many whites consider them, uh, many Hispanics rather consider themselves white. But if you take only the non-Hispanic white population, it has diminished significantly. So it is a different America. Uh, I do think that these cultural appeals can have power. Um, we're, we're not going to know. I mean, it's really going to be externalities that determine this election. I mean, it is going it really, to be. It could be. Yeah. yeah. yeah I really A big do. storm. Uh, you know, remember what Hurricane Sandy did in 2012? I mean, that. And Katrina. I and mean, Katrina. Yeah, turned everybody yeah. against George W. Bush. I mean, I just think that we just don't know what is going to happen between now and the election. Uh, it's not controllable. We don't really have any, um, any control at all over it. Um, and we just well, you know, since, say our since, prayers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Since you guys have all been roped into sitting there and watching this thing, just like me, I, I you'll appreciate this, that when, you know, that, that scene where they, uh, Trump interviewed a bunch of people that had been held hostage in various countries and, and, and he was talking with them. Well, I really identified with those folks. <laughs> That's how I felt being forced to watch this right. thing. Oh. And, and he, he told the guy who had been held in Turkey that Erdogan's a good guy. Good guy Erdogan yes. was great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. His, his jailer. Um, okay. Well, um, let us now turn to our final thoughts. Uh, Bill Galston. Yeah. Uh, I believe it was Damon who already invoked the name of one of my favorite political reporters, Ron Brownstein, uh, who writes not one but two columns a week. Uh, the other one is for CNN. I commend it to everybody's intention because it is a long, data-rich evaluation of the prospects of the Republican Party in the long term if it continues along its present demographic course. Uh, And the results are not encouraging for people 
who would like to see the Republican Party as a co-equal uh, competitor to the Democrats in, let us say, the year 2028. Linda. Uh, well, I want to uh, point to uh, a story that was in the LA Times, and I actually saw it on television as well, uh, which uh, focused on uh, the LA Clippers coach, Doc Rivers. Uh, he said something which just uh, really affected me. He said, it's amazing why we keep loving this country and this country does not love us back. And of course, Doc Rivers, for those who don't know, uh, is uh, black. Uh, and he was talking about his reaction to what was going on in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I think it's important for all of us uh, to, to listen to that, because I do think that too many uh, conservatives in particular have absolutely no idea what it is like to be black in America. And no, we're not a, uh, an irre, you know, irretrievably racist country, but there is enough racism that goes on that uh, I think we have to recognize it. And I think we have to be a little more empathetic. You know, with every passing day, I regret more and more the um, way too early death of my old friend and mentor, Jack Kemp, uh, for whom I had the pleasure of working back in the late 80s um, on his ill-fated presidential race. Um, he was one of the um, most big-hearted and generous political forces in America. He was very concerned about improving the lives of African-Americans, and uh, that made him stand out in the Republican Party. Damon. Uh, yeah, well, my suggestion is, um, this is very me, a, a tweet thread that thankfully, for those of you who do not live on Twitter, as I do, uh, good for you, by the way, um, there's something <laughs> called um, a thread reader, which which turns a tweet thread into actually something like an essay. And this one reads like oh. a, a good short essay. The author is Julian Sanchez, who's mm -hmm. uh, is a kind of uh, libertarian very smart uh, reporter. He knows a lot about law. Um, his uh, Twitter handle is at normative, uh, but if you just look him up under Julian Sanchez, you'll find him. It's a very good uh, short thing. Takes about five minutes to read. He apparently uh, injected the phrase epistemic closure into the conversation years ago. Hmm. Um, and he's revisiting the idea to clarify that the idea does does not and was not intended to mean an echo chamber. It doesn't mean siloing and only listening to people within your own kind of ecosystem. It, it's a deeper idea that it allows you not to not hear objections to your own view, but to explain to yourself why you don't have to listen to them or take them seriously as objections. And he walks through how the Republicans over the last four years under Trump have developed a series of concepts that serve that function. For instance, deep state. Anytime someone raises an objection uh, to to Trump, if you can just say, oh, it's that's just an example of the deep state, then you just automatically dismiss the objection. Similar with fake news, similar with the swamp. 
that these like little tropes that we get so sick of hearing Trump saying over and over again, and that the whole Republican ecosystem now uh, parrots all the time, actually serve a kind of cognitive function of insulating the right from criticism. And so it's a it's a very thoughtful and as usual troubling uh, exploration of exactly what's going on on the right to allow the things to happen that are happening. Um, that's that's interesting, and I will look that up. I, I would just add, there's one other which I addressed in a piece today that I, I think is along the same lines, which is um, there are many Republicans and conservatives who um, use the, the matter of abortion law um, as a way of sort of shutting down their moral judgment on everything. Um, if somebody is correct on abortion, then their brains snap shut and they don't reflect on, you know, how that fits into a larger context of morality on other issues. And uh, I think that's um, a weakness. Absolutely. Um, okay. Mine is praise for the American Civil Liberties Union, which is unusual for me. I found them to be somewhat um, biased and, uh, and one-sided in, in recent years, whereas they have a proud tradition of upholding civil liberties in America, but they don't always live up to their own standards. But, to, but today they did. Um, a piece in uh, the Wall Street Journal by David Cole, who is the uh, legal director of the ACLU. His article is called The NRA Has a Right to Exist. And he's critical of the New York Attorney General for bringing um, an action against the NRA. Now, the NRA is very corrupt. Leadership of the NRA, deeply corrupt. There's been a lot of self-dealing uh, and the board has to deal with that. And uh, they, there should be criminal liability where required. And he doesn't deny any of that, but he says the attorney general has gone too far. He's overreached and she's trying to shut down the entire organization. And he points out that, you know, if government can just shut down organizations that it doesn't like because of the views they express, you know, the NRA is a, is a big lobbyer for gun rights and, and that's part of the constitution and people may not like it, but, you know, be uh, using the, this uh, scandal as an excuse to try to shut them down really does violate um, people's rights, both of association and of free speech. And so bravo to the ACLU for doing its traditional role. Okay, thank you one and all. <laughs>